Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to the show. It's time for Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. I'm Jason. Every week I promise you at least one of three things. Witches, Whiskey, or Wit. Let's see. Today, though, I have been drinking wine on the porch with my wife since about 1.30. So most of what you're going to get are witches. I can guarantee witches because I don't even have a glass of whiskey in front of me, and I'm not sure how witty I'm going to be. So I can, I can promise one. And, but we have a great witch for you tonight, one of my favorite witches, one of the best witches that I know. I really, it's true. You're much better witch than like I am, or silly <laughs> queen raven is, or something. You know, I mean, you, you and I are the shit. So, without <laughs> no further ado, or gilding the lily, my guest tonight is Phoenix Lafay. I adore Phoenix. Hi, Phoenix. Hi, Jason. Thanks yes. for having me on. Your you show. really are. It's a pleasure. You're my third guest, and three is my favorite number. So it probably nice. means you're my favorite guest. That's awesome. Six is my favorite number, so we're halfway there. Yeah, yeah, it's like almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, re- it's related. You are one of my you're one of my favorite witches. There's no <laughs> question about that. You know, my favorite witches are people I love and respect, and also terrify me greatly. Awesome. <laughs> so, I you like and you and yeah, it's true. You and Ari are both in that category. Uh, so <laughs> well, I have really to great. accept that. <laughs> yeah. So you've been doing this a really long time, despite your tender age. How mm. old were you when you discovered the craft? Well, I was fifteen when I found out the things that I believed and had been pseudo making up had a name and that other people were doing it and that there were books written about it. Uh, so, you know, I, I can look back and see different places even younger than that where I was practicing witchcraft or doing spells or whatever and not knowing what the heck I was doing. But it wasn't until I was 15 that I actually was in a bookstore, picked up a book that had witchcraft in the title and opened it up and was like, holy crap, this is like everything I've been doing, all the things I believe, and it's in this book, therefore it must be real. <laughs> what book was that? What, because I think well, like the first book that we read has a big impact on what we do later. It does. It does. So, and this is in the mid nineties. So it was totally that I, I, I call it the witchcraft revival of the nineties, right? Where like the books intro to witchcraft or Wicca 101 were like freaking everywhere. So there were actually mm-hmm. two books and one of them was about um, candle magic. And I, it was by Jarena Garina Dunwich. Right. And it was specifically about doing spell work with with candles. The other book was Raymond Buckland's Big Blue Book of Witchcraft. And th- so it was really those two books combined that were like 
smack me over the head. This thing is real and it has a name and it is witchcraft. I remember all the Jarena Dunwich books and there were a bunch of them yeah. and they weren't printed by Weiser or Llewellyn, which made them huge oddities to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's yeah. what's sad is I've kept so many books over the years. I have a ridiculous amount of books, but I didn't keep that one or I let someone borrow it and never got it back. Cause I, I, I do that occasionally. Uh, but I'm sad. I don't have it anymore because it does feel like it would be, this, you know, sweet, nostalgic thing to have in my possession and I don't have it. It does make me sad when I think about it. If it helps, I can give you one of my two copies of DJ Conway's Celtic Magic, which was my <laughs> first book. Well, I mean, uh, I'll be happy to do sweet. that. That's very sweet, but I'll pass. <laughs> uh, Ari like bought me a second copy of that because I thought that I had lost mine and she's at a used Aww. store and she took a picture. She's like, Oh my God, this is here. And I was like, buy it, buy it. Yeah. And she was so embarrassed and ashamed, but she got it for me and I made nice. her buy it in public. Yeah. Her that's wish card was work. invoked. No, that's I'm good very work. I actually it. think, I think I have that book already. I have several Conway books actually on my bookshelf and I'm, I'm not even that embarrassed to admit it. <laughs> she was a terrific writer. She was a very good writer. I mean, that doesn't mean yeah. that what was in the books was factual, but she was a very good writer. I, like, I still yeah. quote that stupid book over and over. So what did you think of Buckland's Big Blue Book? Uh, I thought, well, I mean, at 15, I thought it was freaking amazing. It was like, it, it had exercises in it. it. It talked about doing spell work. It talked about how to make your own cloak and all of this. I mean, it was so introductory, right? You know, I, I I go back to it every once in a while just to see, like, is there some gem in here that I've forgotten about or missed or or whatever? And it's fine. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to go backwards and read books and recognize how much is missing from them because they're keeping it watered down for a reason. Uh, but I, I mean, for, at a 15 year old me was over the freaking moon. I thought I'd uncoded the keys to the universe by finding that book, you know? One of the things about Buckland's Big Blue Book, too, is it looked like a grimoire in a way that yeah. other books did not, with the giant pentagram on the cover. It was always like the book, mm -hmm. I don't want grandma to see this one. I don't want grandma to see this one. Yeah. Well, yeah, and in each chapter, yeah. there were these questions or exercises and then big blank spaces where you could write your impressions or your feelings or whatever your experience was in doing the exercises. And there weren't other books that were, you know, like, do this exercise and then write down your feelings in that obvious do this now type of way. Uh, and I think in my copy, there's still at least one where I started to write my answers. And then I realized this is dangerous. I shouldn't be writing my answers in the book. And I transitioned everything into a, a notebook. Uh, and actually, that's a lie. I have a three ring binder. And I still use it to this day as my main book of shadows because I can add to it and subtract from it very easily. But in the, I've kept everything in this three-ring binder. And in the very front, I have my answers to the Buckland stuff. And the very next section 
is Silver Raven Wolf. And all of the reflection work I did working through Silver Raven Wolf's books. <laughs> <laughs> that is so Gen yep. X. It's so Gen X. You, hey, I you know what's funny? Gen X and millennials. Thank you very much. I'm that in between awkward aged person. Trust me, I live with one of those. I know Zenials yeah. or something, right? Yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But, you know, I always think it's funny because when people talk about Gen X books, they always talk about Silver Raven Wolf's Broomstick, yep. and then often Cunningham's solitary Wicca, or Wicca Guide for the Solitary Practitioner. But, you know, Buckland is right up there. That's the other one. Because everybody I knew had that book. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought it was was crazily impractical, though. Like, here's how to make your own athame. Like, nobody's going to fucking do that. Well, you even here's did, how right? to make your own. No, no way, no way. I wish, but, but even making your own robes. I am not that crafty of a witchcraft practitioner. <laughs> There's no way I'm gonna sew my own robes. I can barely sew on a yeah. button. <laughs> well, that and you like you're like 15. You know, hey, yeah. what are you doing? Uh, sewing my witchcraft robe. You know, you can't get away yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, well, or I, I mean, would. I yeah. I was a little older. It was like, so what are you doing to my college friends? Oh, I'm sewing my witchcraft robe. You know, no, <laughs> you couldn't do that. Probably even worse than talking to your parents about it. Kids are yeah. cruel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, to- well, yeah, because just- then I became the weird girl in high school that did weird things. And I found out much later, actually only in the last four or five years, I found out that a few folks were afraid of me, which I, I have to admit me a little bit happy. And I have an ex-boyfriend, my high school boyfriend, and he's actually the whole reason I started practicing witchcraft because I was like, maybe if I hadn't, I wasn't raised religiously. So I thought that, God, this sucks. My heart is broken. This hurts so much. Maybe if I was raised with religion, this wouldn't be so hard. Right. And that's when I found this book about witchcraft because I'd been going to churches and reading about different religions to try to find the right one for me. And, and here comes, you know, Raymond Buckland. <laughs> but anyway, so it's his fault that I fell into witchcraft really. Uh, and many years later, decades later, I found out that he, he has held this belief for 20 years that I cursed him and he's carried this around his like entire adult life thinking that I cursed him in a very specific way. So uh, I actually reached out to him not that long ago when I found this out because it was really upsetting me. That's absolutely not something I did, just to be clear. That's not something I did. But I reached out to him and I said, hey, I heard this weird rumor. And I just want you to know that I never would have done that and I never would do that just because – at that point, if he had really believed that for 20 years, he's made it the curse. You know, he's put the curse on himself. And I really right. felt like he needed to, like, if I could help free him from that, I needed to do it. Yeah. That's very sweet of you. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I, I probably would have let it keep going. Like, one of the girls that had, like, one of the dozens of girls that had broken my heart until I was, like, 28 had done that. I would have been, like, whatever. So you said that you read this book and you like recognized things that you were already doing. So what kind of witchy things were you doing at a young age? How young was it and what were they? 
Well, a lot of, I was doing a lot of spell work. I just didn't realize that that's what I was doing. I, I would gather flowers or plants. Um, there were, I, I kind of ran the little kids club and we lived in a, like an apartment complex most of my life. And there was this gang of little kids that we all kind of, you know, marauded the complex together. And I uh, was a bit of a controlling force of this little gang of children. But we would do things like we would name, it's very Anne of Green Gables, actually. We would name trees and have, we would give them offerings. Uh, There were certain parts of the complex where you could crawl in the bushes and be hidden and have like little forts and stuff in there. And we would name these areas. They were sacred spaces. We called them sacred spaces. And we would set up shrines all over the place. We would gather flowers and plants. I don't know what we were gathering. It was whatever grew in an apartment complex. So, you know, nothing magical, really. But we would make potions and brews. Uh, uh, you know, occasionally we would find a stray cat that we would feed and adopt and call it, you know, our, uh, well, Orphan Annie was really the only cat that we were able to get to hang out with us on a regular basis. You know, just doing kid stuff. But when you look at it through a, a lens of witchcraft, I can see like the baby witch being born there. Um and this is so super embarrassing, but whatever. When I was probably 11, like I wanted to be a woman so badly, so badly. And I wanted my period to start. So I did this whole ritual of filling up this water, uh, this glass of water and pouring it over my belly, like to encourage the flow and to try, you know, and, and make my period start. And of course, that's not how that works <laughs> it's not uh, my my 10 year old or 11 year old spell is not going to change biology uh but i did that for months months and it's totally a spell it's a ritual you know so things like that yeah i love how free you are with your period like today i look up <laughs> on twitter and it's like i'm on my third period since self i like you know shelter in place orders have been given yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's actually a really big deal for me to talk about menstruation in a way that's just super whatever because I hate that it's so taboo still. So, yeah. <laughs> it's something that happens. I mean, I buy RA yeah. tampons at Target. I don't care. It's, just, it's life, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. We have so many, yeah, so many stupid hangups. Yeah, I don't like that. So I'm very um, open about it. So you did witchcraft alone for a while before you joined any groups or did any coven work. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 I mean, as, and, a, as a teenager, I roped in a couple of girlfriends and we would do rituals like right out of the books together, but they were like just humoring me. They weren't as dedicated to making shit happen as I was, you know, it's nice of them to play along though. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm persuasive. <laughs> Those, no offense to Buckland, but those rituals in the Big Blue Book are terrible, too. They're, like, awful. Yeah. They're just really terrible rituals. I mean... Yeah, a lot of the rituals at... written are bad. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you're trying to rectify that right now, I think, because you have a ritual book that will be due out in but probably, like, a year from now, maybe a little less right. than that. Yeah. 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 Are you someone who really enjoys writing ritual? 
I do. You know, there's a part of me that really loves the drama of ritual, like all the things, burning the incense and calling the quarters and walking in circles and all of the things that we do to create or build sacred space or build a container or whatever. I love the drama of it. It's, it really appeals to me and to, to my child self, to my senses, you know, it really appeals to me. And I feel like a good ritual builds and, you know, you, you create this base or, um, you know, whatever. And, and the more you add into it, the more it, it starts to create anticipation and excitement. And that's what a good ritual is all about. So, you know, I like, I do like writing rituals because I feel like I write the ritual that I would like to be a participant of. What was your first public ritual like and who was it with and did it live up to your expectations? Oh my gosh. Okay. So when I was 17, so I'd been reading books and, you know, trying to perform rituals at books for a couple of years, a girl that I met at school, the only like uber goth girl in my entire high school told me about these public rituals that happened in our little county with the reclaiming tradition of witchcraft. And she said that Starhawk was going to be there. And by this point I read the spiral dance and I was like, Holy crap, Starhawk, we must go to this ritual. So it was a winter solstice ritual and it was uh, 1997. No, 1995. 1995. I went to a winter solstice ritual. There was a little under, 80 people there, I think. And Starhawk was there. She was the main priestess of the ritual. And it blew my freaking mind. I thought, holy crap, if this is what the, the rituals in the books are supposed to be like, then we've not been doing it right. Because this, it was amazing. <laughs> it was like raising a cone of power, having 80 people like singing together and drumming and chanting and toning and feeling that energy was amazing and of course even like having 80 people doing a ritual together it it is a force in and of itself it's not quite the same when you're with a smaller group or as a solitary you can't quite raise the same amount of energy as you can when you're with a large large group but it totally changed everything changed everything for me it was amazing that is so cool that like your first ritual is with starhawk because i think for most of us it's like an isolated county park with 18 people in a styrofoam cup. You know, it's just not <laughs> Starhawk. And now you know Starhawk so well. I know I know Gwian calls her Star. Do you call her Star too? Uh, it's so weird. I call her Star when I'm talking about her with other people who know her, but when I'm with her, I always say Starhawk because I don't feel like I've been given that permission to call her by a nickname so it's weird you know i would i would probably just call her ms hawk myself i don't know how (laughs) i mean i rode an elevator with starhawk once and i almost shit my pants you know she probably thinks what a weird person what a weird kid that she's so normal and down to earth you know like and and she because she is really well known she's got a a bit of a guard up so it's it's hard like i've known her I don't even, 
for well more than a decade now, I've like, I help organize a ritual with her. So, you know, she definitely knows who I am, but every time I communicate with her, I feel like I have to explain who I am again. And not because of her, she's never made it seem like she doesn't remember me. I just assume that I don't rate in her memory banks to be like, okay, Hey, Starhawk, remember me? I'm Phoenix from Sebastopol. She always knows who I am, but I feel like, I, I couldn't possibly be important enough to, for her to know who I am. <laughs> you know, I just think it would be exhausting being Starhawk because like pagans, yeah. this is one thing about our community that bugs me is if you have a problem with another pagan, the community is small enough that you can oh, yeah. talk to that person, right? It's it's not like you have to talk to their 12 agents or something to get through. You know, it's a, it's a right. small pond and we all kind of know each other. And she's like one of those figures that everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You know, going to a festival and having 30 people know me can be kind of tiring. I can't imagine what it's I like bet. to have all like 1,000 people always know who you are and, you know, want to yeah. talk to you about everything. Yeah. It's probably best that she and I aren't close or like that she doesn't know who I am because I would probably ask her lots of crazy weird ass questions and talk like just talk her head off. Yeah, tell me about this. You know, there's a tell couple. There's a there's a couple other elders from the reclaiming tradition. You know, because for, for folks who even know what the reclaiming tradition is, there's a lot of assumption that Starhawks like our leader, and that's not remotely true. It's it's. Um, we have no leadership in the reclaiming tradition, but there are some other elders who were beginnings of reclaiming being born. And it's awesome to talk with them because they have so many stories and memories and like threads of things that would be lost um, if Starhawk was our only elder, you know? Uh, so it's a lot of fun to go to events and like bend the ear of someone who's been around for a long time because there's so much, lore and history in the reclaiming tradition that is you know funny or sad or whatever you know but they're like and I'm sure that's true with any tradition it's just the reclaiming the one I have the oldest relationship with uh, but you know it's there's um there's a lot of wisdom that is shared well beyond what Starhawk might do so you were 17 when you went to your first reclaiming ritual how yeah. many, how, from there, when did you actually become yeah. like a part of the tradition? Because you're a it, big yeah. part of the tradition. Because, I mean, every year yeah. you go and talk at witch camps and do a lot of stuff. So when did yeah. you really get involved? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it took a really long time, actually. So um, I'm super introverted, although people who, um, you know, only see me teach or present or whatever, have a hard time believing that, but it's true. I'm super introverted. And when I was in my teens and twenties, it was even worse. Um, so I would go to like, and I'm really blessed because I live in Northern California. It's a, I live in a super hippie community where there's lots of witchcraft happening. There's Druid groves and, all kinds of other collectives and public rituals. There's a Dianic Grove that's been meeting here for like 50 years. So there's a lot going on where I live. Um, but I was way too scared to do anything more than attend public rituals. Reclaiming has offered classes for, for, for decades, forever, from the beginning. And every time I went to one of the public rituals, I would think, oh, maybe this time I'll, I'll A, either be brave enough, B, have enough money, because I was also super broke in my 20s, 
to pay for a class or to go to a class. And I just never was brave enough. And I um, actually met my ex-husband at a reclaiming ritual. We met at a ritual and he and I ran a coven together for the whole time we were together. And so this, I've always been doing things, but stepping into leadership took like on a more public scale took a really long time because I am so shy. Uh, and it wasn't until, I don't know, I, I'm 42 now. So the year I turned 30, I took, I took my first reclaiming class. Um, and I was, it, it wasn't super like I didn't, my mind wasn't blown by this class because it was all the stuff I'd already been doing for almost 15 years. It was just given to me in the reclaiming language and the reclaiming packaging. And so I kind of got a vibe more for the inner workings of reclaiming. And that was it. Then I, I took all the classes. I went to witch camp and the following year I started student teaching. And then I just, I, I've been teaching and teaching at witch camps and doing all the things ever since it was like, once I broke the seal and realized it wasn't that scary and my head wouldn't get chopped off, I guess. I just ran with it and it just haven't looked back. What is it about reclaiming that appeals to you? Uh, what is what appeals to me is also what drives me crazy about it. I want to be really clear <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh, reclaiming is the reclaiming does not use liturgy so there is no book there is no uh the ritual format is there's a, a skeleton but there's no real structure there's kind of, there's a joke in reclaiming if you do it once it's innovation if you do it twice it's tradition because nothing is ever the same so every ritual is rewritten from scratch every time and I love that because it is like really form. going with the flow, right? Yeah. But it also makes me crazy because I feel like, you know, one of the things about having liturgy and doing things the same way every time is it deepens your experience. Your, you know, your brain chemistry starts to shift and change understanding like, okay, this neuron is firing and it's going on this path. Um, so, you know, the thing I love about it is also the thing that makes me crazy. <laughs> No, I get that. Yeah. I mean, because I love writing ritual and doing new things, but there's also kind of that trigger. It's like a trance when you do the same thing over mm -hmm. and over. puts you in a yeah. state without having to work to get there. And if you're doing it differently every time, it's a little bit more work. So if somebody's been doing reclaiming for 12 years, what, I guess, like, what makes it different from other traditions? I mean, I kind of know the answer mm -hmm. to these questions, but I like to ask you as my guest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the so biggest thing is, is the structure. It's non-hierarchical. So there, no one is in charge and everything is planned by consensus process. So if there is a public ritual or a class or a witch camp, anything that has the reclaiming tradition uh, label on it, it's not one person running the show. It's not one person who's the star. Uh, so anyone can step into leadership. Anyone can help priestess a, a ritual. You don't have to have completed any level of training or have a degree or a lineage that says that you're ready, right? Which is amazing because it makes so much space. Um, but it also creates a little bit of an interesting problem with people who are super new and gung ho and want to do all the things, but maybe don't have the chops or the experience, right? 
So there is this um, concept of mentorship, you know, making sure that people who are new and excited are working with someone who has experience. And and I find that that's a little bit different than some other traditions. Uh, And the consensus process thing, you know, like most traditions, at least the other traditions that I've been a part of or, or have had access to, Um, There isn't, we're not having a consensus meeting to decide what things are going to look like. There's leaders and the leaders decide what things are going to look like. Uh, And and there's pros and cons to both things. But for me, that's the biggest difference is is the the leadership and hierarchy in reclaiming uh, is vastly different than I've seen in other traditions. Yeah, if you, if, you know, if you listen to the show, half of you, are, I assume, know who I am and what I do. And I'm a gardenarian, and it's like my wife is completely in charge, and right. that's just how it is. And, you know, there's an <laughs> ease to that. But I'm also blessed that she's not a terrible person, because I know right. that there are groups that are run by someone who's just an absolute monster, which is, right. you know, really scary. Yeah. So switching switching uh, gears, getting off on another track, one of the things that I really appreciate about you, and perhaps it's one of the reasons that, you know, I love you and I'm scared of you at the same time, <laughs> is you've done a lot of really different magical work. So yeah. we're going to talk about your first Llewellyn book in a bit, but your first two books, though, were Hoodoo yeah. Shrines and Altars and a book called Cash Box Conjure. How did you get involved with hoodoo? Because I also know that you're Lady Phoenix, like you're Miss Phoenix, right? In yeah. certain circles? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, also a weird story. Um, so, and this is so super complicated, especially with what's going on in <laughs> Minneapolis right now. So I just need to name that. Right. Uh, you know, ho- hoodoo is African-American folk magic. And for folks who know me or have seen me, I am clearly not African-American. However, I was raised in an interracial household. So I have a very interesting perspective on um, what it is to be an American and live in this, you know, like I've mentioned a minute ago, I live in Northern California. It's crazy liberal, very progressive and open-minded. And being raised in an interracial household, I saw some terrible terrible shit happened to my stepfather just for existing as a black man. So um, I can't talk about hoodoo without talking about the experience of African-Americans in this country. So I just needed to name that. Uh, No, I think that's really important. Yeah. 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 Uh, Because it is African-American folk magic and its roots come from slavery and, uh, you know, the, uh, the oppression of a whole group of people uh, but I worked at Lucky Mojo for many years, and that was getting the job at Lucky Mojo was so crazy happenstance. It just kind of fell into my lap. Um, and w- the more I learn about magic, the older I get, the more I learn about magic. I I really do feel like it's all the same stuff. It's all the same stuff. You can see from different cultures across the freaking globe that magic is so the same it's just they do it calling it this and these people do it calling it this and those folks over here call it doing it this but the roots of it and the energy of it and the practice of it is there's so much in common 
And the more I learned about hoodoo, the more I was like, oh, this is what I'm already doing. Like all of this root work stuff is, is magic. It's, it spells. It's the same stuff that I've already been doing. It's just got this interesting Christian veneer on it because it was a way of making it still be okay, you know, through the, the guise of oppression and, and um, forced um, conversion into Christianity and all of that fun stuff, right? So uh, I started practicing hoodoo as a way of expanding my personal practice because of my uh, what I was learning through Lucky Mojo and actually in, in talking with my stepdad about hoodoo stuff, he grew up in Texas and there is so much stuff that he just took for granted as part of life. That is hoodoo stuff that he, that he never would have ever said the word witchcraft about some of the things his family does. He never would have used the word hoodoo. I don't think he even like had a definition for that word before he and I started talking about it, but it was just totally ingrained in his culture growing up, like his family and the area of Texas where he grew up. So it is, um, you know, there's often people are like, what's the difference? Hoodoo, voodoo, it's the same thing. And voodoo is religion. Hoodoo is folk magic. So it's the stuff families were doing. It's the stuff communities were doing. It's the stuff that was happening in the the back room of a church after service. Uh, And through my relationship with Catherine Ironwood and through my relationship with Lucky Mojo, uh, I wrote those two books that were published by Lucky Mojo Press. Uh, And that was so fun and enlightening to the process of, of writing and working with a publisher and and all of the things that are insane about working with Lucky Mojo in general. Um, <laughs> I don't think we necessarily need to go into right now, but someday no, over no. a drink in the bar, if you have questions and you're listening to the radio show right now and you're like, what the hell is she talking about? Buy me a drink and I'll tell you later. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was that'd, a That'd be like thing. a four hour show. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so most like uh, Phoenix rides for Llewellyn. I ride for Llewellyn. We have a lot of friends who ride for Llewellyn. We all kind of talk about yeah. it sometimes. And you know your early experiences riding for Lucky Mojo like, really paved the way, and you know to some extent for you riding for Llewellyn, just because your vision notes are always so much shorter than the rest of ours, <laughs> which is like our vision notes are our second draft notes that we get. Um, that drive a lot of us crazy. You know, sometimes there'll be 15 pages. In Phoenix's case, they're like a half a page or something. No. Because it's all all perfect already. No? I thought it was like half a page. No. No. No, my first book was like three pages of notes. Yeah. I I felt good when when I got eight pages on the last one. I was like, oh, this is easy. (laughs) Only eight pages. It's not 15. Nice. I think we know somebody who's got 30 pages once. You know, so it it all varies. I've heard that rumor. Yeah. 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 We won't go into that too much. But, you know, one of the things, one of the things that I admire about you, though, is your clarity when you write. It's all very clear. You know, sometimes you can read somebody and it takes, like 20 minutes to get to what they're talking about. You know, it's 
16 mm-hmm. sentences all to say one thing. And your your writing is very, very clear and concise, uh, which yeah. is why I loved the book, What is Remembered Lives, Developing Relationships with Deities, Ancestors, and the Fae. I think you're, like, legally obligated to write about the Fae, given <laughs> your last name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. This book does you know, there, exactly there is this joke in reclaiming says. in the reclaiming tradition. We uh, because it is improvisational, and every ritual is you know a new ritual, and people don't write down the way they're going to invoke before they invoke. They just step into the circle and do it. Sometimes they can take up a lot of space. So there is this joke about having brevity with impact. How can you say the thing and not take an hour to say the thing? And that's kind of my superpower. <laughs> <laughs> it's a skill that a lot of pagans and witches do not have. True. So superpower is the right word. So I love this <laughs> book. I I got to read it before most everybody else got to read it. It's really fantastic. Yes. What was uh, the inspiration to write this specific book? Yeah. Uh, it was actually partially from Guion encouraging me and then I kind of took his encouragement and expanded it a couple of steps because I've been leading these classes for about eight or nine years now I can't even remember how long I've been doing them but I've been doing this goddess of the month class for a really long time and that started because a dear friend of mine would bring up a deity like oh I'm so curious about this deity and then I would go oh that's Aphrodite she's born of this story and here's more information about her and here's a way to work with her because I love being a polytheist so much I love talking about God so much it's my favorite freaking thing about being a pagan and so she encouraged me to start doing these monthly gatherings where we could learn about different gods and so the whole goal was through these workshops maybe someone would be introduced to a deity that they fell in love with and wanted to start a deeper relationship with. Uh, and so I've, I've been doing them a really long time. And I've done dozens of different goddesses over the, over the years, uh, hoping, you know, to introduce people to these different entities. And uh, Guion was like, you should take everything you've learned or been doing and put it into a book. And, you know, his whole thought was like tea time with the goddess and how do you start to have a relationship with a deity uh, and, and, you know, talk a, a bit about the gods that I've really developed a relationship with. And I felt like, you know, we say as pagans, when someone passes on, you often hear what is remembered lives. Like if we remember their name, we tell their stories, they live on. And there's a part of me that, that feels like that's true for more entities than just our ancestors or our beloved dead. Like the gods may be fine in their godly realms, wherever that may be, but their relationships to humans need humans. And if we remember Mm -hmm. them, if we share their stories, if we talk about them, if we give them offerings, that keeps them alive in the human realm. Uh, And I know that is true of our ancestors. And I know that is true of the Fae, just from my own personal experiences. So I sort of took this idea of working with deities and then expanded it to our ancestors and to the Fae, because it really is about relationship with any entity. It's about relationship and, and entering into relationship with those entities is kind of the same steps. Um, so that was, that was the jumping off point. 
for the book, and then it just kept getting like bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was growing up in the '90s as a little witchling, it felt like a lot of people used deities kind of as correspondences, like not yeah. they weren't they didn't mean anything to people. It's like, oh, I need money, so I'm gonna invoke Mercury. Have you ever spoken right. to Mercury? No, but I'm gonna evoke him for this. And yeah, it's about relationships. And it's yeah. something that I think a lot of people like miss. So what deities, I mean, I know who you talk about in the book, but what deities are you closest to? Yeah. So um, this is kind of complicated. Well, not really. So I have five deities, five that I work with on a daily basis that I talk to every day. I give offerings to every day. Uh, and then, then they're my like first string. Then I have like the B team or the second string. And that, these are gods that I have a good relationship with, but we're not like intimate. Right. So the five of my inner court, my like deeply personal relationships are Baba Yaga, Dionysus, Thor, Bridget, and Morgan Le Fay. Those are the five that I every single day offer something to. Uh, and then, you know, the B team is pretty big. Like, Aphrodite is on my B team. She and I have an <laughs> excellent working relationship. I always go to her when I need to help a client with love work or when, you know, I need clarity or with, like, the my my book, Walking in Beauty. Aphrodite is a huge inspiration for that piece. But we're not, like, intimate. We work together really well, but that's it, you know. So there's quite a few of them in the B team, but um, – but those five are my specific beloveds. Yeah, you know, I I knew the Dionysus thing. Um, that's probably yeah. like, that's probably one of the reasons Ari and I like you so much. You know, he's in charge. <laughs> she's in charge of the house. How does how does one come to Thor, especially in this day and yeah. age of Marvel movies? I know, I know, it's so ridiculous. So, <laughs> I never worked with male deity for decades. I had no interest in working with male deities. I was fully a goddess girl. Uh, I felt like, you know, maleness has enough power and energy in our culture. I didn't want anything to do with it. And then I started exploring my ancestry. That was the first sort of um, loosening of my armor, I guess. And I started really digging into some of my Norse ancestry and learning more about where my family comes from in Norway and all that stuff. And then I started sizing and this, I fully get like to the average person in the world. What I'm about to say sounds freaking crazy. So I get that, but I started exercising. I started working out hardcore and every time I would be working out this voice, this, this energy would intrude. It was totally an intrusion and it, um, it was the very male, very big, very um, uh, intense. And I, and he was like, this is who I am. We're going to have a relationship. And I was like, nah, I'm good. And then what happened for a couple of years, any workshop I went to, any ritual I went to, any trance I participated in, he would show up. It was like, okay, and now we're going to trance to Hecate. And then Thor would be like, guess what? You're not going to visit Hecate because you're not done doing your business with me. And, and it was it was ridiculous. And I just kept saying, no, I'm not interested. You're like the dutiest of dudes. I'm not interested in working with that much <laughs> male energy. 
And he was like, no, you actually need me. Trust me. I'm not going anywhere. And so when I finally gave in and started like engaging with this energy and, and talking to him and opening up to it, I did need it. I totally needed it. Uh, and when Marvel first started making the Thor movies, I was like, watch what happens. All of a sudden, interest in, in the Norse paganism, interest in Norse mythology is going to fucking skyrocket. And it totally did. And I'm okay with it. I think it's problematic. But I'm okay with it. If Thor is your gateway drug to paganism, I, I think that's great. Even if it's the comic book Thor. <laughs> I mean, I'll admit that I can't think of Thor without thinking of how Jack Kirby drew Thor in 1966. Right. I mean, that's just... Right. And I know that that's not how Thor really looks like in mythology. No. That's just so ingrained. No. It's so tough. But I've had a conversation uh, so you, with Thor about this, and he's like... Cause in one of the earliest conversations, I said, I'm not interested in working with male energy, Besides, all I can think of is Chris Evans, and he changed in this vision I'm having. He changed from being the big red-bearded guy to looking like Chris Evans, and he was like, if this is what you need me to show up like, I don't care. I'm okay with it. My experience is that Thor has an amazing sense of humor. He's freaking hilarious, Uh, but he is intense. He's intense. Yeah, I I have like a Loki thing, and I don't like to get into it because of the Tom Hiddleston and the and the Thor movies, yeah. and it's really problematic. So you mentioned Morgan Le Fay. You mentioned Morgan Le yes. Fay. Yes. yes. So Morgan Le Fay is kind of one of those deities who <laughs> is mentioned in myth, but not uh-huh. necessarily mentioned as a goddess in myth. And I'm not yeah, saying that she's not a goddess true. because you know you know that. I have like a thing for a god who has no mythology, Kernonos. Mm-hmm. You know, right? You also are married to someone who has a Kernonos thing, and one of the things that I love about the Kernonos thing that I have with other people is we'll talk about Kernonos, and all that we know is that we both love this god without any myth. So there's like no story that people can go like, oh yeah, that's what he thinks and that's what he's like. Mm-hmm. So when you meet other pe- pe- people who honor Morgan Le Fay, are their experiences mm-hmm. with her similar to your own? Some, I mean, sometimes yes and sometimes no. I think uh, in the early days of my practice, I was much more hardcore about um, who knowing the origins of a goddess and, and knowing the truth, the true story and all of this kind of thing. And I've come to this place that's a little bit more relaxed and different. And I feel like the gods evolve Uh, and the, and we don't know, we don't know Morgan Le Fay's true origins. We don't know if she was a Fay entity or a, a, a goddess or some, uh, you know, a deity of a specific grove or water source or whatever. We don't know. It could even be that she was just a character from a beautiful set of stories uh, and that she didn't exist beyond. Like she is the Harry Potter or the Hermione Granger of her time, right? And it could be in 300, 500, 1,000 years that Harry Potter and Hermione Granger are worshipped as gods. Who the heck knows? It's totally possible. Definitely but I not think wrong her evolution... Though. <laughs> well, you know, I left. I noticed I left them out, right? Uh, right. 
but I think her evolution has brought her to God status. And I think there's enough modern practitioners uh, who are involved in connecting with her and worshiping with her in her many guises, because I think she does represent a larger sort of queen of the fae type energy. Like this is a long conversation we could have, but uh, I think that her evolution has brought her to godhood. I don't think she was born there, but we don't know where she was born from. So, um, yeah, in my practice, I treat her as a god. So that brings up something that I think about a lot, and you, this is also kind of Thor. You know, there are people who cringe, like, oh, no, Thor is being depicted in this way, in this Marvel movie with this flowing blonde hair. Not that there's anything wrong with flowing blonde hair, mind you. <laughs> but, but it feels like a lot of the times these are the people who, are, who identify as polytheists and are very yeah. vocal about being polytheists yet they're denying the agency of the gods themselves. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's a question. Yeah. No, and I think it's tricky because, the, I mean, at the end of the day, the bottom freaking line is that we have actually no idea. We can do history and study and archaeological research and sociological research, and you can have all the science behind you on what the culture may have looked like, but we have no idea. We have no idea what it was really like for those, for the people day after day to live in the lives that they were living and how they worked with their gods. We make a lot of assumptions and people who get so like foaming at the mouth radical about it having to be this one way, we don't actually know what that one way ever was. So why do we need to stick to that one way now? And if, if that's how it has to be, that it's so radicalized as, you know, being this one thing, that's basically being a Christian. There has to be flexibility. There has to be room for growth. These things have to evolve. Otherwise, they're stagnant and there's no room for any development. And as much as we might know what it was like to live in ancient Greece from a historical perspective, we're still looking at that history with our modern lens. It's impossible right. to divorce what our lives are like, you know? So I think it's, I think it's a bit over the top to be so radical about it having to be one way because we can't possibly know what that one way looks like. And I can't imagine that worship of Dionysus in the year five was the same as worship <laughs> of Dionysus in the year 200 BCE, right? I mean, they were going right? to be different things because of different circumstances. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And different hey, places Greece. too. Like we always talk about Greece, like it's this one thing, but for ancient peoples, Greece was freaking huge. And the way this one village did it would have been vastly different than the way the village 500 miles away did it. And they would never even know that they were doing it differently. It's not like they had the internet. Yeah, even the relationships between certain city-states and Greece, the, the gods, the relationships yeah. of the gods were different. You know, in Sparta, yep. Aphrodite carried a spear and rode on the chariot with Ares. She didn't do that in right. Athens, but she did it in Sparta. Right. It, they were different. And, you know, we've all read Bullfinch's mythology or versions of that, and it presents this very unified look at the Greek gods, but that was not how it was actually done in ancient Greece. Exactly. It was all very different. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and if you take Greece just as one example, 
it's going to be like that all over the freaking planet. Every culture that we sort of give this one label to, it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that simple. It was much more complicated. And my my favorite thing is when people talk about Hindu, like Hinduism, as like one religion. It's like that's a word that encompasses a thousand different mm-hmm. active religions. It's just the it's a word that refers to the various religions of India, and a lot of them have right. absolutely nothing in common other than maybe a few deities. So we're winding down. We've only got about ten minutes left, and <laughs> I have not yet talked to you about walking in beauty. Using, of the, using the Magic of the Pentacle to Bring Harmony to Your Life, which is your next book, which is coming out sometime this summer. I know that the yes. dates have been around a little bit. So can you tell me yes. about your next book? Yeah, you know, what's crazy is, you know, the, the concept of the book and the writing of the book happened, you know, two years ago, a year ago now. And it is so interesting how much it fits into our current world paradigm and how we really need it right now uh, because it is about reconnecting to the beauty of the world you know and the, the way I sort of pitched this book initially was you know all it takes is two minutes on social media or watching the the 10 o'clock news or the cable news network to feel like humanity is screwed And this book, the workings of this book is the antidote to that. It's about reconnecting to the planet, reconnecting to the beauty that is right outside, reconnecting to the beauty that is uh, human, that is being in a human form, and what a miracle and a blessing that is. Uh, And the tool of all of this is the beauty pentacle, which is, it's a, if you've ever worked with the iron pentacle or any other concept of pentacles, it's just running energy through your body, using your body as the pentacle. So it's it's using energy work and nature work to revitalize our lives. Yeah, the whole pentacle thing is like really a kind of a very reclaiming way yeah. of doing things. And I, I remember like when I first was exposed to that terminology and it was before some of these books had come out, I was so very confused. Not that it takes a yeah. whole lot to confuse me, especially, you know, <laughs> as Ari and I are on the second bottle of wine. <laughs> you also, yeah. You also own a witch shop, which I always think is yes. like the coolest thing. And Milk and Honey is a lovely, fantastic store, and I've been there several times. And I've like, oh my god, I'm so grateful that I got to go to your book signing back in October, yeah. like when people could gather together. And yes. There's so yes. many people there. Yeah, it's like a different world. Good time back when we can I gather. Know. I know. How, how, how well are you weathering this current storm at Milk and Honey? Uh, well, we, I mean, we are closed. The shops have been closed mm-hmm. since mid-March. Um, so, you know, we're taking online orders and all that fun stuff. But it's, it's definitely, it's nowhere near our normal um, stage of traffic or amount of sales that we would like but we have received some government money and assistance. So that's helping to keep things afloat. I think, you know, ultimately before all of this happened, milk and honey was really flourishing. Things were going beautifully well. And so I feel like this is just a pause so that when things can reopen and when, as things slowly open back up, we're going to just step right back into that flow. 
um, you know, so we do have an online store. It still doesn't contain everything we have in our physical location because we have so much in our physical location. It takes, it's a lot of work getting all of it on the website, but uh, you know, we, we do in-person classes and in-person readings and that's hard. We miss that so much being able to see people. So we've moved even that online. We've been doing online classes and online readings, and it's all going really well. It's just, you know, we miss it. We miss being in the shop and seeing everybody. How I've done a couple of online classes now. How do you feel about it? Is it? Are you getting used to it? Do you like how it's done online? I'm getting used to it. Uh, I'm I'm doing two different styles of classes. So the you know, the style of class where it's more lecture and no one, no one else's screens are there except for me. That's real easy because I'm in control and it's just me and everyone is forced to listen to me, blah, blah, blah at them for an hour and a half. I like that. That's fun. <laughs> uh, and then I'm doing these other more intimate offerings where there's a small group of us and we're all sort of talking and sharing and communicating together. And it's it's definitely getting easier, but I find where like once upon a time I might do like a whole day workshop where we have lunch together and, you know, there's breaks and you can go for walks and things like that. Uh, And trying to condense that work onto an online format, it just doesn't work. And it's way, it's way more exhausting energetically and physically to be online than it is to be together. Yeah. Yeah, There's something about not having that give and take with an audience that makes it a lot better, I think. Absolutely. Nobody laughs at my dick jokes, you know, on the online classes because <laughs> I can't hear them. I hope they're still laughing. Right. I don't know. I don't know. It's really strange. Uh, yeah. Well, um, as long as so you're who cares? <laughs> that's true, but, you know, sometimes people pay for this shit, you know, and I feel like they got to get their money's worth. You know, I feel kind of guilty yeah. about that if it's all just bad dick jokes. <laughs> So what are you working on now? Your your ability to write uh, quickly and consistently, like, amazes me because, you know, you're going to catch up with me at Llewellyn, like, really fast. <laughs> so what are, what are you working on now? Well, Gwian and I uh, just actually got the artwork back for the book we wrote together, which is called Life Ritualized, and that's coming out next year. So that's that's still, you know, in the editing process. Uh, and then I am working on a book um, called Witches, Heretics, and Warrior Women. And it is a very feminist woman type book, but it's, def- it's about becoming a heretic and why that's good and why the world needs more heretics to dismantle patriarchy. <laughs> you know, easy stuff. Yeah, yeah, just, just a light read. You yeah. Know, over a gin and tonic, just a light read. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're about out of time. We do about an hour on the show. If Pete, this has been my favorite conversation I've ever had on the show. It really has. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like you know, sometimes nice. you have guests who don't answer questions, and it's not really a conversation in any way, and you just like half-ass pay attention to things and look at Facebook. <laughs> but this has been—I've been engrossed the whole way, and it's been funny. Nice. And it's been great. No, it's fantastic. You know, you know, I, 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 we love you so much. So, no. Queen is is Phoenix's husband. Ari is my wife. The four of us are are pretty close friends, I think. Yeah. And we were just yeah. talking about 
how we desperately want Phoenix over at the house soon for <laughs> for various reasons. Mostly because of your organizational skills, because we want to redo the ritual room. And we're like, oh, my God, we can't do that until Phoenix is with us. She does that so much better than we do. Oh, well, I True. love doing it, too. So, you know, as soon as we can, I'll help. Oh, my God. We love to figure out a way. <laughs> we'll all wear masks and social yeah. distance and work on shit. I don't know. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you and your various pro- projects online, where can they go? Yeah. So I have a website, phoenixlefay.com, and it's L-E-S-A-E. Lefay is a tricky word, I know. Phoenixlefay.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm not always good about Facebook because Facebook sucks, but I'm there. Facebook's awful. Um, and I know. And, you know, uh, Milk and Honey is in Sebastopol, milk-and-honey.com. It's another way to connect with me. But, um, you know, all of the online things are definite ways to find me. Please do. I love chatting about witchcraft. And she chats well about witchcraft. Our guest tonight is Phoenix LeFay. As I said, this is like my favorite interview I've ever done on one of these podcasts. Oh. This was just fucking fantastic. It's not just the wine. Usually I'm much drunker than now, but I was just having such a good time. I didn't want to go get more wine because I didn't need it. So this was great. Uh, I just want, before the show is closed, I want you all to say the name George Floyd. Uh, think about it. Uh, think about what we can do uh, to make this world a little bit better, but say his name out loud. Uh, uh, just think about it. Be a better person. Um, weeks to come. Next week, Lil Dorsey is going to be my guest. After that, Misha Magdalene. I've got Keldon for the summer solstice and then Thorn Mooney. I'm like so on the ball with the podcast now. Nice. It's amazing to me. I know this is not going to happen once football season starts, if it does. Uh, thank you all for listening tonight. Again, my guest was Phoenix. Thank you so much for being here with me tonight. This was great. I'm Jason. Thank you for listening to Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. And we will see you next week. Uh, you know, God's, you know, God's providing and allowing. So until then, thanks. Good night. <laughs>